I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So I feel like I should begin with uh, a question I've been meaning to ask him ever since I read one of his stories in Fame, which is a wonderful story about a traveling writer who gets asked again and again and again, where do you get your ideas? And do you write in the morning or the afternoon? Um, I won't ask him those questions to begin with, because if I were to do it properly, I should also serve him, I think, roast pork, uh, which features in, in the story as well. But I thought I would start by talking a little. What we have in common is that we're both, we have both written historical fiction. I thought I would ask him a question about measuring the world to begin with, which is wonderfully accomplished stylistically um, and really hits you in stride in that opening chapter. It's a great opening chapter. I'm now slightly daunted to realize he wrote it when he was 22. Uh, and no, I was, no, 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 I didn't. Not, oh, not, not, no, not, no, my first novel I wrote with 22. First, first novel. Measuring the world I wrote with 29. So that's not huge different, but it is, yes, yes. you're a different person. Now I'm less daunted. Now I can ask the yeah. question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can, can you it, it flows so naturally the, the opening of, of measuring the world but I'm curious what kind of decisions you felt you had made mm-hmm. before you could begin it yeah uh, that's a very good question because I had actually worked on it um, quite a while in quite different styles uh, because I knew that I wanted to write this comic novel about uh, Humboldt and Gauss but I didn't quite find the right tone. And of my, my, my first drafts uh, really did look like a very r- regular genre fiction, like the kind of thing that you find by dozens in, in the history, sh- in, the, in, in the historical novel shelves of uh, bookstores, which are not as committed to literary quality as this one. Um, so... Uh, and, 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 and I was working away from that uh, st- towards something which I thought should be more forceful and also in kind of avoid the traps of, of, of sounding trivial. And um, what actually uh, the, the, the important moment for me was when I realized there is a reason why so much of bad historical fiction sounds trivial, but... Uh, the thing historians write do- doesn't sound trivial. And the, the reason for that is that historians use much greater distance. They, they, they look at their material from a greater distance, and then I thought I will c- try to adopt this tone of distance 
without actually using it the way a historian would. I will use it the way a novelist would, inventing, making things up, and also with as much attention to detail as possible, but I will use the distance tone of a, of a, of a historian. And that's, again, it took me a few more drafts, but then I somehow arrived at this tone which starts off the novel and which I try to keep through, through, through all of it. You can actually see that in the first line. One of the differences in, in our approaches is that it is clear from the novel that what you're doing is historical fiction. Yeah. That you're writing from a different point of view. This is the distance that you're talking about. I think from the opening sentence. Yeah. I also use a, a, histo- use a, a historic... I, I, I mentioned the year 1828 yeah. in the opening sentence, and that's actually the only... Uh, dates that's ever get mentioned uh, ever get mentioned in the book you, is that because the, it was important to launch this distance from the beginning and then yes. you became less anxious yes about it? yes not not just anxious otherwise I would have just cut it because I also thought um, it's kind of uh, yeah la- launching the distance but then the, the moment it's established I didn't want to to have uh, I didn't want to have dates flying around and also um, for, I, I also try to be to do the same thing to places. When hum, Humboldt is traveling South America, I always use, which is quite difficult to research these days, because it's difficult to find a map with the old names. I, I use the old names from uh, the time when 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 these parts of South America were still Spanish. Yeah. So I'm talking about Humboldt going from New Andalusia to uh, New Madrid. And uh, no one, of course, who doesn't put in some research uh, of, of, of his or her own has any idea where that is. But readers never have complained about that. How much, do, <laughs> how much did you care about being right? Yeah. That was auf Deutsch antworten. Not too much, but then on the other hand, I do care. Uh, I will give t- this back question back to you in, in, in a moment because I, I'd like to know the same thing from you. But um, I did, of course, I, 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 did, a, I did make a lot of things uh, up and uh, also a lot of things about the, the, the biographies. I mean, it's a novel, and I think I, I used the, these two people as, 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 as characters in a novel. Um, the funny thing is, I, as a kind of personal ambition, a kind of... Yeah, I, I tried to be to not make things up when it was about science. Mm-hmm. So, um, when you write a book about two scientists, you get the most it is the most interesting and also most uh, frightening uh, letters from readers, um, saying things like, uh, "I really enjoyed your novel, but you just got you just completely did, do do not have it, you completely got wrong how." The, how the um, how the compass behaves when you cross the magnetic equa- equator, uh, and then they send you drafts, and they send. <laughs> and actually, I always try when when somebody sent me stuff like that, I th- I I always try to correct that. So I have been correcting small, minor scientific things that nobody notices uh, since the first uh, printing. Uh, but yeah. but I wouldn't claim that one has to do that. It's just something I, I, I like to do. But as far as the characters are concerned, I make a lot of stuff up about their life and who they are. And, and So I, w- I would like to ask you the same thing. How do you feel? I mean, the question with, with you, of course, I would have to ask about Byron. 
Um, do you sometimes feel? Uh, yeah, let me phrase it this way: Do you sometimes are you sometimes afraid that there might be a life after death and that somebody might introduce <laughs> you to Lord Byron? <laughs> <laughs> That would be great. <laughs> I, I think the, the duty to truth, and we talked about this a little bit before, depends a lot on what kind of history you were writing. Uh, and with Byron, I, I've given readings about uh, from the second novel, which is about my second Byron novel, which is about Byron's relationship with his wife and his sister. And I had people in the audience afterwards come up to me disgustedly saying, if I had known he'd slept with his sister, I would never have come. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really want to say that, but the, um, so there's a certain duty to the truth because with Byron, because some people know a lot and some people know very little. And my idea is I don't want to offend the people who know a lot. On the other hand, I realize I'm talking for the most part to the people who don't know very much. Uh, my first book, uh, The Sign Papers, which is set in a world strangely like the world of uh, measuring the world and covers some of the same figures. Mm -hmm. The trouble I had there, I was arguing a counterfactual. So that you write about Gauss and Humboldt, who are geniuses of a kind, and you write about their genius. Now, I'd heard about a guy who tried to prove that the earth was hollow. And it <laughs> seemed to me this was a much more interesting story if instead of being an idiot, he was also a genius. But the trouble is I had no facts to back up his genius because the earth isn't hollow and he got everything wrong. So I had to do a lot of counterfactual work to suggest the ways in which this obvious nut uh, wagered his life on the wrong intellectual idea but had all the mental pyrotechnics that a genius would have. Yeah, but uh, you still you still deal with people who actually have lived and you make up things about them as, 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 uh, as I did. Um, and when I, I never found a good answer to that, so I'm mm -hmm. I'm, I'm I'm really I'm I'm, uh, in, I, I'm getting quite insecure there myself. How how far can you go? Is there a is there a point uh, where where it would get too much to invent something about a person who has lived? And uh, where is that point? Is there? I, I just think there is no rule for that, but. Uh, on the other hand, I feel there must be something like a rule for that. So I still don't have a good answer to that. It's, you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously anxious about this because my last book, which is the one set in the world of German basketball, I do the same <laughs> thing, except I do it to me. <laughs> and in a way, that was a, a, useful ta a useful task because I could see what kind of facts I was comfortable making up about myself uh, and what kind of facts I wasn't mm. comfortable making up. And in a way, I do. The, I mean, really, I do the same thing to Byron. Uh, I try to write the sorts of things about Byron that could have been true, yeah. and I think you do the same. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much that it doesn't matter entirely that they were true, but that they could have been true. And one interesting, and I, and I, you know, I was anxious enough about this in Byron's case to write three books on it, <laughs> um, which may be going too far in my anxiety. But in the last book, I actually reveal the sources, mm -hmm. so I have a contemporary, uh, and I'll read a little bit from it later. I have a contemporary narrative in which I tell mm -hmm. you all the sources of the Byron narrative. And then at the same time, try to pull off the magic trick of making you believe in Byron as a fictional character. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think? You're correcting the science. I <laughs> Your Gauss yeah. is a bit of a jerk. He is, yeah, yeah. Did and that bother you? Yes, it did. It did. Actually, because um, my Gauss is more of a jerk than the real Gauss was, as far as the sources go. 
uh, I mixed, for example, I mixed some of a, a character I always loved, a historical character I always loved was for his grumpiness and terribleness was Arthur Schopenhauer, the philosopher. So I mixed some Schopenhauer-ness into, into my character of Gauss. And uh, so um, I kind of felt I did some things which on the, on the literary side I can absolutely uh, defend, but still I feel something... I feel somehow it's better if there is a life after death that we don't meet, uh, and and I also felt like I had to, which we, uh, I had to give him the right to to protest. So at the at the very beginning of the of of the, I, it's, I, th I think it's something funny we have in common that we both start historical fiction by something like giving disclaimers, uh, like like uh, and 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 I have this paragraph Gauss at the very beginning of the book with Gauss saying that, uh, I'm not going to read it now, but Gauss saying that it's so unfair that we are born in a certain moment in history. In 200 years, every idiot can invent anything about him. And that's, of course, me, that, that uh, yeah. idiot he's, he's protesting against. And you have this, um, in, 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 in posture, you have this uh, prologue uh, underwritten by, by, by you as the... In the fiction of the book, the only thing you wrote is the prologue, yeah. yeah. And and there you have this, um, you're protesting against the whole uh, uh, method. You're saying, um, uh, uh, apart from everything else, there's the danger of anachronism over each particular, not to mention the general danger involved in writing against time. So, and, and, and you say more, and you, 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 you in, in, this, in these two paragraphs, you put forward a very convincing case against the kind of fiction you are you, you will going on to, to, to you going on to give the reader in this book so we're kind of doing the same thing and is it is this just a postmodern game or is it I think it also comes from some real insecurity every writer has to start a project like that or, or do, do you agree or not at all I think so and 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 It's true also of your later works, that even though when you're not dealing with historical figures, you mm -hmm. ask the same questions mm -hmm. about the relationship between the facts we can know about the characters mm -hmm. and the characters themselves. And, and I mean, in a way, this is the big subject of the novel, mm -hmm. and one of the things that novels can do better than any other art form is they can root and contextualize everything we want to say about character. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's fair? And that in, in fame, you also play games with this. You admit to making things up, you change mm -hmm. circumstances. You know. mm -hmm. I do, yeah. I do. I think I've gone a bit I think I've, I've kind of done enough on that side now, so my next novel, the way I'm planning it now, will be more uh, realist than, than, than fame was. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, you could say that the problem of the relationship between a novelist and his characters, it gets much less theoretical and more urgent and more moral when the characters are somehow connected with real with people from real life or with historical uh, figures. and um, But also something that comes into play uh, is the, the tone of how to write historical yeah. fiction. And that's something we have uh, kind of, at least in, 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 in my one and your, your uh, three or four, I mean, this, I mean, Syme is also kind yes. partly historical fiction uh, books because um, I try to To, to, to really stay away from get from emulating historical tone and you also it, it, it's interesting because uh, you're in your 
uh, prologue, you claim that the novel is written in 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 kind of historical style, but it isn't quite. Yeah. It's uh, it's uh, uh, yeah. Could you maybe say something about that? Because it's it's very interesting how you deal with style in, in, in that sense. Well, one of the problems I faced, which I don't think you faced to the same extent, mm -hmm. was that um, to a certain extent, and I think you're right about imposture. It's the the, the next Byron book is written more entirely as mm -hmm. if it were. Yeah. I wanted to write yeah. historical novels that could have been contemporary to the period of history in which mm -hmm. they are set, and that meant that I was limited in word choice. There's certain words I can't yeah. get. And there, I mean, you don't quite have that problem, though. You have it to a certain extent. Always. I had it. I, had, I also had it. I mean, I realized that I was not quite uh, limited because of this contemporary historian's voice, but I still feel. Felt strange, and when I when I used words that couldn't have been used by the characters, and also the editor, immediately the editor is also of the translations immediately complained about that, and yeah. sometimes I had to defend it, I had to say no, no, it's really it's it's okay because it's um, it's it's a it's a contemporary voice, but it is the problem is also there. Yeah, and and I had it so. I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, I wrote next to my OED, which very helpfully lists the earliest written usage mm -hmm. for any word I wanted to use. And what happens? So, an imposture is set in 18 teens. What happens if I get a word which is whose first recorded use is 1830? <laughs> Does that mean it was spoken beforehand? I think the one I got away with. I allowed myself graft. I think it was graft, which appears for the first time in 1830, and I use it in 1818. Um, the 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 model I had for imposture, and maybe this was a bad model, was something like Caleb Williams, you know, the Godwin novel of ideas. So it was supposed to be a romantic novel of ideas in the romantic sense in which a plot is supposed to argue a philosophy. And the trouble with using that as a model is they're not great novels. <laughs> yeah. um, but that was my model mm -hmm. for, for imposture. Uh, I've now forgotten where I'm going with this. Um, <laughs> the, the historical style, or the not historical the not style, his yeah. The not historical style. So did you really try, was it really your aim to sound like the book had been written in 1818? Or, uh, it was a, it was, I, I felt like you, you were doing something in, in between. It still feels like a contemporary novel, uh, kind of... Um, kind of masking, but you're always aware of the mask. But but I'm not a native speaker or native you're reader, right. so I might be wrong about you're that. You're right. No, I go much more uh, full Monty in the next one. Mm -hmm. I wanted a handshake mm -hmm. between a yeah. kind of casual contemporary style, yeah. partly because, I don't know if you were attracted to this, in the same way that I had to limit myself with words in writing about the 18 teens, there's a whole range of vocabulary that I had access to, which you don't have access to now. Mm -hmm. So whenever I'm writing these books, I reread Jane Austen endlessly. And Austen had 30 different words for character, for address, for aspect, for personality, the way people present themselves, because that's what a young woman was trained, trained in. That was the art of self-presentation. And we don't have this kind of scientific language mm -hmm. of psychology. We have a psychological one, but not a scientific one. Mm -hmm. And it was very attractive to me to be able to write using these sorts of terms. I don't know if you felt that you got access to... Areas of knowledge which uh, no, kind of I died didn't. That out. was the that was the other side of using this contemporary historian's voice that I couldn't go too far into that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, I would have given up this distance between the, the or this pseudo distance between the the narrative and the, and and the voice. So, but you I use science more than you do. In, I mean, 
the language of science is very important to the book, and it's an outdated language. Of yes, science. and I, I tried. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I was fascinated by the outdated science yeah. part of it. So um, I, 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 I indulged myself there in, at one point when I uh, have Humboldt give. Um, it's not very long, but in the, the whole book is not very long. So if something goes on for close to ten pages, it is long in the in, in, in the shape uh, compared to, to to the other things in the book. And I let. Humboldt give a, a, a presentation for about for close to ten pages of uh, what I felt was the the beauty the, the real beauty of the worldview you could have in in eighteen uh, in in eighteen twenty eight when everything in the world was fixed and clear and beautiful and you could have the idea that all the problems including death um, itself would be solved by science soon and. Uh, then science itself destroyed all that and discovered um, that it wasn't that easy. But um, I was fascinated by the language and the concepts of uh, of outdated science. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also there, I didn't I didn't really go too far. I um, I didn't really want to give up the idea of a contemporary tone to to, to it all. Um, I mean, part of what you do in the book, I think, is open up sudden perspectives on the next 200 years and the past 200 years yeah. of scientific yeah. history. Also by having uh, this kind of... Uh, one of the devices of common historical fiction is that uh, characters have uh, usually have no idea about the future. Not their future, but the future of, of, of mankind. So uh, they're always, uh, in a way, treated like, like, like children who have no idea what's coming. And I felt that, so, like, they would be so surprised if they could see how we travel on planes or, or, or have phones and, and things like that. And my idea was that somebody like Gauss, who was a real first-rate uh, scientifical genius, would not be too surprised uh, because he actually, if, if, if you have a real deep understanding of science, you have a pretty good idea of where things could go or where things are going. And um, he, he's thinking a lot about future developments, and so he has a good he has an idea of things to come, but also he's often wrong, yeah. Uh, because yeah, you 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 will always be wrong often if you're also if you're a great scientist, and uh, so but that uh, kind of made it possible for me to put it all into into perspective, and also um, that's why I sent him to the dentist, for example, mm -hmm. because. Uh, of course, uh, it's very easy to fall in love with the beauty of a bygone age and, and, and to think, wouldn't it have been nice to live there? But if you just think for a moment how it must have been to have severe toothache and, and, and to live in that far away beautiful age, then you're quite happy that, you, that you're not there. And uh, Gauss knows that. Gauss knows that in, 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 a, not in, in, in a while it will be not such, it's still terrible, but uh, will not be such an ordeal anymore. Because there's that wonderful toothache scene in Buddenbrooks which, that <laughs> oh, it yeah. ends with. So, so oh, yeah. he'll still have another hundred years. That's actually one of the very attractive things, I think, about your Gauss, even though he's a bit mm -hmm. of a jerk, is that he has, he has what seems a very contemporary quality and that you can imagine uh, he has acts, he, he's the kind of 60-year-old academic 
who is fascinated by the net of his day oh, yeah. and wants to know where it's going to yes. go. And he, he would understand that, yeah. Um, but you give such a moment to Humboldt later on, in a very powerful moment that you spend very little time on, mm-hmm. which is when I think it's he looks at the, the ruins of the Inca or Aztec mm-hmm. civilization, which are enormously complex, mm-hmm. and he says very quickly, this is so un-German. Yes. Because the culture is clearly brutal and yet civilized, whereas Germany is just civilized. Yeah. Um, but you spend very. When you wrote that, had you yeah. intended for that moment to take place at that time before yes. you started the whole chapter? Uh, yeah, I think so. And, yes. it, and you ground yes. the whole, you anchor the whole chapter around it. Yeah. But you spend very little time. It's one yeah. of the things you do you well. You yeah. don't spend too much time on. It's it's one of the things. A sentence like that, I think it works only if you do it very short. The, the irony mm. of the sentence. Uh, it hits only if you really don't spend much time on it, if it's just mentioned in passing. Um, uh, so, uh, yes, I, I, I just I wanted to get him there and I wanted him to, to, to say that thing. And it's one of the important sentences of the book because it's so, it's not just a f- funny moment or an ironic moment, it's also a very sad moment because it's so sad to think that he could have said that. It would have made sense in every yeah. way for, a per- for somebody like Humboldt um, it made 100% say, sense to say something like that and then it was so wrong and so you feel all the weight of the fact that this great culture of Humboldt and Goethe and Schiller um, was there and still couldn't uh, it, it, it didn't help to, to avoid what was to happen not that much later but um, uh, such s- s- Musings like that can be so ponderous and so and and can bring everything to a stop. So uh, I think it's just it's also much more effective if you just have put it in one sentence that gets dropped and and then well people wouldn't have talked about it very long because it would have been so clear. Right. It made me think of the great Tom Lehrer line: um, "Once all the Germans were warlike and mean, but that couldn't happen again. Yeah. They taught us a lesson in 1918. It hardly bothered us since then." <laughs> yeah, I know uh, that one. That's yes. so wonderful. Yes. Uh, maybe should we talk, because I, I feel like this is a natural m- moment to go on to a discussion not about historical fiction, but the same problems one faces in contemporary fiction, mm-hmm. which in both of our cases have dealt with the relationship between things that are true and things that are fictional, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is really the subject of fame and also to a certain extent, me and Kaminsky. Mm-hmm. What interested you about that question in fame? Um, you mean uh, true... Uh, well, yeah, the idea for... The Id- one of the ideas for fame was um, to, well, to examine the way, to examine what happens if a writer puts something in a story. So um, in, in I, 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 I have this, I have a few writer characters in this books, but book, but I have this one writer character who um, actually wrote two stories of the, mm, of, the right. book, of, of the book. So and and you see him going to a, a journey together with his girlfriend, who desperately does not want to be in one of the stories. And in the last story of the book, uh, of this novel and stories, she is actually it it, it is you you've actually gradually find out that they are in a story he wrote. And so uh, it is in a way this last story is the fictional version of the journey they make together in the. In, they made together in the reality of the, of the book in the earlier story. There are two so stories in particular that are, um, that are very striking. One is about a woman uh, who has terminal cancer, yeah. I think it is, yeah. and wants to die with dignity in Switzerland. Uh, and it's a story about her journey there. 
in which the writer's involvement is very heavy, mm-hmm. and you see him making things up as he goes along. And there's another kind of companion story to it about, a, and maybe the most terrifying one in the book, about a, a writer who goes on a junket, I think, uh, out east. It's especially also. terrifying to writers. Yeah, especially, yes. especially terrifying to writers. <laughs> and uh, put up at the wrong hotel, doesn't have any money, the people are supposed to be taking her around go missing and she gets stuck there and this story has no as far as I can remember intervention from a writer at all no they're very similar stories mm-hmm. uh, how do you feel about the difference between them is that a fair question yes absolutely uh, because it is in a way I wouldn't say a version of the same story but there is some something structurally similar to yes. them except that there's no intervention so the one is the in a way, one is the is the realist version of the of of the other story, or the more realist version. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's. Which it, one did you? Which one do you like more now? It's difficult to say. I think artistically, the one with the writer interventions is the is the more complex story. And as a writer, you're always proud of the more complex thing you've 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 accomplished. Uh, but I think the more forceful one is the realist story, so yeah. which is often the case that realism has real realism is the more forceful. It's good technology. Technique. Yeah. It's good technology. It's, it's, yeah, it works with with more for, more force. Yeah, um, and it's also uh, but but you you also used yourself as a character even. Yeah, and, so. and I was thinking about this when you talked about whether we were being postmodern or not and my sense of it has always been that I'm pre-modern and one of the things about the romantics is that they also employed fragments and told stories about the writers and my sense of them was that their interest was very different from the postmodern interest that the point of view of the romantics is that they wanted to make the thing seem as real as possible Uh, and so Mm -hmm. obviously fragments seem very real because they're not finished and so they suggest that the thing erupted from real life Uh, telling stories about who wrote it is another way of enhancing the reality effect and the postmoderns want to undermine the reality effect. And my interest was always in the pre-modern sense of how real can I make it seem. And a funny thing happened when I was writing the basketball story, which I'd written about in various forms, in memoir forms, again and again before I came to write the novel. And I wanted to get something about of that real tone in it. Uh, and it felt different if I made up a name for myself, if I made up a kind of Zuckerman name. Um, and what I did in that book, it's no more true than any of my other novels, uh, even though some reviewers treated it as entirely true. I think in most writers what you do is you have a certain mixture of things that are true and things that aren't yeah. true and you try to make the things that are true sound more like the things that aren't true your tuning fork yeah. is struck to the not true and in this book I wanted to make the things that weren't true sound more like the things that were true and see what effect that had and one of the effects and I use the same technique to a certain extent in the contemporary section of the, of the final Byron book uh, in which for various reasons I'm not going to go into now it was quite important that the me character have an affair and I told my wife at the time that I was writing this, I'm thinking of committing adultery, um, <laughs> I said to her. But the fact that I used my name in it really changed what mm-hmm. I could get away with. <laughs> and it suddenly didn't seem so easy to have this affair. I'm not going to tell you what happens. Um, it, it, didn't, it didn't seem so easy. And that was interesting. Because when you play with real money, suddenly you put a little bit less on the table. And that was one of the ways mm-hmm. that I wanted to experiment with this line between fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a very unknown and I think just wonderfully experimental Philip Roth novel, because you, you mentioned Superman called Deception, mm. where he does exactly that, and he even takes it he, he takes it even so far that there is a discussion between him having his own name and his wife being his 
not his real wife, but have been having the name of his then real wife about uh, how stupid do you think I am to put this affair right, into a right, book? Right. But it's just a book. Yeah, nobody believes right, that. Right, right, right. And I don't believe right, it. Right. And you read the book and think it's true. I don't believe right, it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, but yeah, you're right. Of, I, I think it's really two aspects of, of, of the same thing. Undermining reality is also is you know is also can also work to make things more yes. more real because we're writing books and. Um, I also felt that this, this story with the writer intervening, uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to do that all the time, but doing it once, it's the, the experience when I was writing it was actually that I felt more, it felt more real in the mom, at the moment of writing because I was talking about the writer writing the story and the character talking to the writer and the writer talking back, and it was actually me at this moment talking to this character. So, and I was... I, I wrote about writing the story and I was writing the story. Yeah, yes. So, um, although it felt like, it, it, it must in a way feel like the most unrealist story to the to the reader, and of course it is in a way, it also at the moment of writing it was the most realist uh, enterprise I've ever engaged in. So yeah. both is true. Yeah, and actually bring, I mean the point, the effect of that story is to make you as a writer think this is going to happen to me. Yes, exactly, uh, and that was, I'm of course, die. a very realist moment yeah. because I'm, 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 I'm telling the, the the character, I'm telling her because it's about her death that she, it's it's uh, she doesn't really exist, so she does no suffering. She shouldn't be worried. She doesn't exist, and she say she she she'll, she gives the answer that uh, when this is happening to me, I'll, uh, to you, so she what well, she's saying is once this will happen to you. And then you will uh, you will just not want to hear this bullshit. Yes. And I thought, yeah, she's right, of yes. course. <laughs> she's totally right. So that's certainly a, a moment of reality. Should we read? Should we do that now? Should yeah. we have little readings? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so should I read from that story, maybe? Because now we are... Yeah. 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 Then I, can I borrow can I uh, your copy of, of Fame? Go for it. I'll just read the, the beginning of, of, of that very story. Um... which uh, has the name Rosalie Goes Off to Die. Of all my characters, she's the most intelligent. Almost 70 years ago, Rosalie was young and good at school. Then she went on to qualify as a teacher and taught for four de decades. Deca decades? Decades. Decades. Thank you. Sorry. She married twice and had three daughters, long since grown. Now she's a widow, her pension covers her costs, and she's never been one to harbor illusions about things. So she wasn't surprised when her doctor told her last week that pancreatic cancer is uncurable and she wasn't going to live much longer. I'm sure you want to know the truth, he said, looking at her as if she were a child who could be proud that an adult was taking her into his confidence. The good news is that the pain doesn't come till the very end. She really didn't have a difficulty accepting the situation. She didn't go through the famous seven stages, no rebellion, no denial, no slow struggle to arrive at an understanding, just a brief inter interval of incredul incredulity followed by a night of the deepest sadness. Then, as soon as morning came, an internet search for the Swiss association she'd heard about that helped people who wanted to hasten things along. I'm sure you know that this association really does exist. I didn't invent it. It's headquartered in a Zurich suburb. 
I'm not going to name it because my lawyer said not to, which is true. <laughs> I, I <added> this. <laughs> Several Swiss organizations offer assisted suicide. This one is the best known. If you haven't heard of it until now, pay attention. You can learn things, even from a short story. You have to join the association, pay a not negligi negligible fee, send your medical records, which a doctor then examines to confirm that your condition is indeed terminal. After this is complete, you go there, install yourself in their only piece of actual real estate, the so-called death apartment, a room with a sofa, a bed, and a table on which a gentle employee sets a glass of sodium pentobarbital. You drink it, unassisted, and of your own free will. When it comes to death, Rosalie is hard to impress. A cousin of her first husband shot himself in the head without realizing how hard that actually is to do and, often people and how often people survive. The angle wasn't right and he vegetated for weeks, minus his lower jaw. Her friend Laura's sister tried it four times with sleeping pills. Each time she tried a higher dose, each time she came to, covered in her own excrement and vomit. Our bodies are strong and the will to live more powerful than we suppose in the dark nights of the soul. And Rosalie's nephew Frank, Lara Gaspar's brother, hanged himself 11 years ago. His neck turned black from the strangulation ligatures, and there were deep scratch, scratch marks on the ceiling. There's no harm in turning to the experts. So after a moment's feeling of revulsion, Rosalie reaches for the phone. It's answered by a Mr. Freitag. He's polite, soft-spoken, and tactful, and he obviously has experience with these kinds of conversations. I should really say that I've invented Mr. Freitag. I haven't called the association. I don't know who picks up the phone there and what is said. I wanted to find out, but a vague terror always stopped me, and I felt as if I were about to do something indecent, as if I were summoning up spirits for my own amusement. In addition to which, I'm not really the kind of writer who uses real facts. Others like to be meticulous and nail down every single tiny detail so that some shop that one of the characters is wandering past has the exact right name in the book. This sort of thing leaves me cold. All very simple, says Mr. Freitag. This is the address, this is the fax number. Please, will she just send the medical records? A psychiatrist will then want to talk to her right away to verify that she's responsible for her actions. After that, they'll fax her membership agreements, and as soon as she returns them, they'll be able to arrange a date. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is there any, for the first time he hesitates, is there any particular urgency? The doctor says Rosalie has spoken of a matter of weeks. In which case they'll put things on a fast track. Mr. Freitag's voice doesn't waver, 
but is full of compassion. He's really good at it. And why not, thinks Rosalie. He could certainly earn more elsewhere, but this must be a real vocation. She even manages to feel a flash of gratitude. In the night, she dreams in a way she hasn't done for years. Her blood pounds, her senses are so fevered that when she wakes up, she's almost shocked at the very memory. So many people, so much noise, and the overexcited embraces. There are faces she hasn't thought about in more than 50 years, people who'd apparently vanished into oblivion. Maybe she's the only person alive who still remembers them. How long ago it all was. It's really time for her to go. And yet, she can't resign herself totally to her fate. Which is why, as dawn is approaching, she turns to me and begs for mercy. Rosalie, it's not within my power. I can't. Of course you can. It's your story. But it's about your last journey. If it wasn't, there'd be nothing for me to tell about you. The story could take a different turn. It's the only one I know. There is nothing else for you. Whereupon she turns away and can't get back to sleep until it's light. There's nothing unusual about this. The last time she slept really well was more than 25 years ago. Yeah, so far. I'll read a bit that does a similar thing, um, but in a slightly different way as we've been discussing. I have split the writer figure and the character figure into two people. Um, and so the frame for this trilogy is that I inherit a stack of manuscripts from a guy I used to teach high school with. And he is the author of the Byron novels, and I'm just the guy stuck with trying to get them published. Which brings me back to New York. The American edition of A Quiet Adjustment was being launched. My publicist, a perfectly sensible woman named Anne, prepared me for the absence of reviews with the usual laments about the current state of literary fiction in America. I refused to believe that the story of a dead high school teacher, survived by nothing but the unpublished manuscripts on which he had spent his private life, wouldn't arouse the imaginative sympathies of every books page editor of the country. But books page editors aren't in the business of imaginative sympathies, Anne said. They are in the business of filling advertising pages. What I could do was reach out more directly to the readers. You mean blogs, I said. No, not just blogs. Reading groups. But she didn't really mean reading groups either. I had my first experience that fall of an ancient and sometimes respectable form of human association, the literary society. The Byron Society of America had an obvious interest in Peter's work. Peter himself used to be a member of it. They met occasionally for lectures or meals or drinks in New York or Boston or Philadelphia, at restaurants and private clubs, mostly academics, of course, but school teachers too, booksellers, housewives, doctors, gentlemen of independent means, grad school dropouts suffering from intellectual nostalgia. One of the reasons I had come to New York was to find out more about my author. His two completed manuscripts were already in print. There was nothing left but a strange, uncomfortable collection of chapters which couldn't be published without some kind of context. The best context would be Peter's life. It was the thought of what I might learn that made me uncomfortable. I had come to realize just how odd his silence in the school halls was. Try spending a week or even a day refusing to talk, which is what he did. You would need a certain amount of resentment spurring you on, but also a few things worth keeping quiet about. 
For two weeks, I traveled up and down the eastern seaboard. The Austin Society met in Philadelphia at a building belonging to Penn. Seven people showed up. The president of the Austin Society, the treasurer of the Austin Society, three junior professors from the English department, and two friends of mine from college. I read some of the love letters from Imposture, which Peter had cribbed almost word for word from Claire Claremont's correspondence with Lord Byron. Afterwards, I stole a bottle of red wine from the refreshments table the English department had laid on and ended up spilling some of it on the futon where I spent the night. The Henry James Society in New York was slightly better attended. A family friend arranged the meeting at his club and by force of not will exactly, but a kind of whimsy, managed to persuade a number of the members to take their cocktails into the club library where I gave my talk. I read the anal rape scene from A Quiet Adjustment. My lectures were often followed by dinner of some kind. Members gathered in the club dining room or a nearby pub pub and talked quite childishly about what is, after all, a rather childish love. I mean the love of books. The oddest, saddest reading I ever gave was at something called the Society for the Publication of the Dead, one of those vague, grand titles that shows up just what it's meant to conceal. Humbleness, obscurity, insignificance. The society was run out of the home of the club president, Mike Lowenthal, a tax lawyer who lived in Queens. Once a quarter, the members got together in his living room and ate unidentifiable stews and talked about their progress. Progress was a big word with them. I heard it again and again. Lowenthal had founded the society, he told me over the phone, in order to bring into one boat people who could be of mutual support and service to each other. He meant people who had inherited unpublished manuscripts, the children of memoirists and closet novelists, parents of precocious suicides. So far, he said, there had been a lot of support, but not much service. They were very excited to have a speaker. In this business, he said, there aren't many success stories. Is that what I am? I asked. I was staying with my sister in New Haven and got the commuter service into Grand Central, then transferred to the 7 train and rode it all the way out to Flushing. For some reason, I found this journey especially dispiriting. To come into Manhattan and go out of it again. To feel yourself diminishing on the way to the suburbs into a different kind of anonymity. Mike's enthusiasm for my success had touched a nerve. Since taking up Peter's cause, I had published little of my own work. Nothing But Playing Days, a quiet memoir of my first long year after college, which I spent playing minor league basketball in Germany. It came out in England first. My American publishers were still undecided about it. The book had received a more muted critical reception than Peter's novels, and I found myself struggling on the long train ride to Queens against the inevitable comparisons. A dull, overcast, late summer day, as pale as December, and in the course of my journey, the street lamps came on without discernible effect on the general whiteness. After five years in the fiction business, I should have learned my lesson. Writers get rewarded according to their exaggerations. This explains why, compared with the real thing, most novels seem so vivid and unnatural, the qualities by which critics and readers tend to recognize good writing. What I aimed at in playing days wasn't vividness. It was the mildly unusual, overcomplicated quality of the story you tell on coming home from work. Our lives are governed mostly by technicalities. Literature ignores them because they are boring. 
We stopped at 33rd Street, 40th Street, 51st Street stations. I'm inventing the numbers, but the impression they made somehow reinforced my case. The streets below us, viewed sidelong from the elevated tracks and partly obscured by window shine, seemed more or less indistinguishable. Sometimes I even saw the same shopping chains reproduced in slightly different order. The variations in people are hardly more significant. After an hour of self-justification, I had the stuffed-up, hungry feeling you get from eating too much of the same thing. So I rested my head against the glass and closed my eyes. Flushing was the last stop. There was no danger of overshooting, and I was plenty early in any case to be at Lowenthal's house by 7.30. Drifting off, I played over again a sort of internal dialogue, which originated God knows where, but had become familiar to me over the past few weeks. It's what I thought about sometimes instead of sleeping. Maybe it was the same thing as sleep. Someone said, Do you find this passage of time acceptable? A voice not exactly my own, maybe my father's or brother's. Yes, I always answered. After a moment it spoke again. Is there anything you have to do? No, I said, there is nothing I have to do. Then why not accept it, said the voice. Then other people intruded themselves. I could hear them like you hear your parents' guests arrive while you lie upstairs in bed. Is this where you get off of Shea Station, Shea Stadium? That's why they call it Shea Station, lady. I beg your pardon, that's not what they call it, and so on. By the time I woke up, the artificial light of the subway car was sharp enough to hurt my eyes. It was dark outside, and I felt oddly intimidated by the hurry of the commuters going home. Yeah, that uh, uh, brings me back to something I wanted to ask you, but uh, I, I, only today I learned that there's a new Byron book coming, so I wanted to ask you about that, um, yeah, about the prologue from, from Imposture. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you what you, why you why you needed it and whether this the, the characters from the, this character from the prologue is going to come back again. But now I, now we know that he's going to come back again. Um, but so uh, it doesn't make sense to ask you what you're going to do because uh, but I can't wait to read this book. That's what I want to say. I just because I was so I was so confused about. I, I thought, what is what what is he up to here? Um, why does this uh, teach, school teacher never come back? Right. But he does, only two he, books later. Yeah, two books later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I needed him partly just for a, a technical reason, which was I didn't want to spend the novel dispensing information about the period. Mm -hmm. And the imposture is about a very... Some, um, there's a phrase that I think John Lanchester uses about historical fiction, which he calls the interestingness problem, mm -hmm. which is what do you do with his history that turns out to be more interesting than the fictional version of it? And in this case, I wanted to. I like writing about failure, and uh, Byron seemed a very good person to write about because he was such a, a success, so that everybody around him suffered by, from the inevitable comparisons. And it so happens that he had a doctor who wanted to be a writer who traveled with him on his second tour of the continent just after the messy divorce, and the doctor came up again and again against the fact that he couldn't write like Byron. So Byron dismissed him from his service because he turned out to be such a nuisance of a doctor. He was a very young man, very ambitious, good-looking. Um, but a nuisance. And he ended up down on his luck, kicking his heels in London, when, and this gets a little complicated, there's the famous summer of the ghost stories, right, where Frankenstein gets written outside Lake Geneva. 
and the doctor had turned an idea of Byron's into a ghost story. And this ghost story had been kicking about for a while and gets published by a London editor of a magazine and becomes a bestseller. Goethe describes it as Byron's best work. It was by the doctor. And so the doctor. I wanted to ask you about that. Is that true? That's or did true. You, you didn't make no. that up. Some, <laughs> some of the shit I don't even make up. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Goethe. Did, I mean, Goethe could not have been a great reader of English. Um, and it's one of the, it's one of the first vampire stories in, in English. And so you're now faced with this character who has this re, a, a moment to, in which to realize that the only difference between him and Byron is the name. And so this launches the story. But I have to give all this history somehow. And I didn't want to do it in the novel, so I needed somebody else to do it. But uh, but he but he uh, but he really does he play a big role in Childish Loves in the new one or is it ju is he just in the preface or is no he's he's all the way through it so the story yeah, that's so what I, that's what I mentioned so yeah. the question I mean the question I ask is um, how much and this is the question that we've we've been discussing mm -hmm. is how much can you tell about a novelist from the books they write so I now have these three Byron books yeah. from this guy they're about Byron they're not about being yeah. a high school teacher in New York but what would they reveal about him. Um, and one of the defining characteristics of Byron isn't just that he slept with his sister, but generally sexual perversion. And, and can I read anything from that into the life of, of this writer? Mm -hmm. And so that's how I, I and set And you it. had it all mapped out from the, from the very beginning. The I had a surprising amount mapped out. <laughs> what was surprising, I, mean, I said this to you before, that I, I had, in order to sell it as a trilogy, I had to write down exactly what each book mm -hmm. would be about. And I never looked at that description again. And then it turned out that every book as it came out was exactly what I described. Um, Know why. <laughs> Lack of invention. Yeah, it was just, um, should we take, uh, shall we open should we take questions? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the, the thing about fact and fiction. So, with playing days, I'm interested. Hello, by the way. Oh, hello, how are you? I taught him. <laughs> um, why, why in playing days did you want to put fiction into it? Why did you want to blur a memoir and novel with that? Why didn't you just go memoir? I, so, I've The embarrassing answer to that question, and maybe the less embarrassing one, I should probably go with the embarrassing one, is that my life wasn't that interesting. And I don't know, what, I have this idea in my mind of a multiplier, of how much more interesting you have to make something, how, what you have to multiply the real experience <laughs> by in order to make it sufficiently interesting for fiction. And I try to get my multiplier down as much as possible, but it was still like 2.5 <laughs> um, in playing days. Uh, so that's the embarrassing answer. The other one I've written about myself so often in non-fictional ways, and I wanted to scrap everything and, and start again. Uh, do you have a multiplier? Do you have a? I never thought of it that way. That's a very good formula, actually. Yeah, I, I, I agree. <laughs> I, I agree. So uh, I, uh, and 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 the thing you did in uh, I haven't read your your uh, baseball book uh, yet. Basketball. Basketball. I'm, I'm so sorry. Uh, basketball, of course. <laughs> I got go it. Uh, yeah. You, I, couldn't blame you, <laughs> but uh, I always thought about of doing something like. Of course, not with sport. I'm, I mean, th that's a big difference between us is that you're s you're a real uh, sports person, and I'm I sucked at something professionally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and I'm not even an amateur. I'm just terrible at sports. Anyway, uh, I always thought of doing something like that with using a real fictional me in some some sense, and I I, I, I think sooner or later. I will try something with that, but so far I haven't found the right way to do it or the right angle, but it's something I'm fascinated by. But, of course, Amplifier is a very good formula because uh, to make it interesting, as a fi 
any kind of fiction has to be more well I wouldn't say more interesting than life it's a real problem because isn't it? some because, people have yeah. interesting lives Even but all the writers shouldn't have such an interesting life because then they don't get to write the books so if you're a, uh, if you're a serious writer then you need the multiplier that's good that's good I don't know I have a, I have a problem I guess I have a problem with it I mean I, I have one of the th- one of the kind of rules of thumb and I don't know if this is the kind of um, nonsense I spouted at you in class is that what keeps a reader interested in turning the pages should have a more or less direct correlation to the kind of thing that keeps us turning the pages of our own lives. And most of us give a shape to our lives. We give a kind of plot to them, and we're looking forward to a holiday or a job promotion or something. And if you can reproduce as much as possible the kind of thing that keeps us interested in our own lives in the story to drive the plot forward, you're doing something good. But I still find it very difficult. I think it's a problem with fiction that we have to make so much stuff up. Um, it but. is. I, st- I don't have a good uh, a good answer to that because you, you there are some novelists who really can. I, I mean, John Updike is like that sometimes. He can turn. He can get interestingness out of nothing, out of just the material of some boy going to school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's cheating. I think. Yeah, it's true. And he also, there's also a lot of that in the books, but. But he can also. I mean, I, th- I really think he's at his best when there's just a boy going to school for 100 pages, and it's sometimes it's totally fascinating, also, also, although nothing is happening. So it's it's kind of it it's, it must have to do so- something to do with the perspective of the writer and how close he gets us to the experience. But as far as I'm myself concerned, I feel I have to make a lot of things up to yeah. make things interesting. I mean, I really do. I, you know, the the, the Updike is a useful comparison for me because he wrote, in some sense, the famous basketball novel, um, Rabbit Run. And he does it with over-vividness. And part uh-huh. of my kick against over-vividness, uh-huh. and this, he does it, it's more vivid than life. Everything is enormously perceptually finely grained yeah. in a way that's slightly implausible for you know the high school dropout mm-hmm. that that he's describing. And so his approach you know, to mm-hmm. the, the interestingness problem is sensual. Mm-hmm. Let us see yep. everything, smell everything. And the truth is, and I, and, and I think you do this beautifully in your own work, um, Updike writes like a writer. And one of the things that attract you know, like a 20th century writer, uh, metaphors, images, everything, you know what the weather is like, mm-hmm. everything is finely grained. And one of, the pro- one of the things that interests me about 19th century fiction is that there was no divide between the way uh, an educated person should write and a writer should write. I mean, if you look at James Austin, they yeah. talk like people. And something happened in 20th century fiction that means people, writers stop talking like people. You don't. You talk like a person um, in your book, which I find yeah, very I attractive. Mean, but it's, yeah. it's hard to get the central fine grain mm-hmm. if you are going to talk like a person. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to, t- as much as possible, to talk like a person. Yeah, that's a very important point. I think it's, it's the Flaubert tradition, in a way. Flaubert yeah. started this, that writers producing this kind of perfect prose, which you know, is, is, of course, a very... It's a great concept. It's a great concept of the modern novel, but in a way also you you can sometimes feel you want to get back to the to the yeah to the normal personness of the pre-Flaubert novel. And a lot of modern fiction does that. And, yeah, that's uh, true. I still, for myself, I haven't kind made up my I haven't yet completely made up my mind which kind of tradition I. I want to be in, and or or maybe I can change that from book to book. But uh, it's still something something I keep thinking about a lot. What, um, uh, and 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 uh, yeah, I mean, ideally, I want to, I want to produce both kinds of novels, but I'm not sure whether both will have the same quality. So let's see. <laughs> <laughs> but it's something I do think about a lot. I mean, as you can see from my kind of structureless uh, musings about this. Yes. <laughs> 
it's on. Um, could I ask a question of um, both of you, a different question? Um, the fact that you're German and you come from a German tradition um, to a certain extent, but what struck me reading Measuring the World was how short your sentences were and how readable it was. Mm-hmm. And I've read a lot of German fiction, um, which is something I admired enormously. I just wanted to know whether you were sort of deliberately breaking out of um, a, a kind of German style of writing. Um, so that's the question to you. And if I could ask um, Benjamin one as well, very annoying people in the audience who ask too. But um, do you ever get annoyed by the amount of research you have to do when you're doing something which is obviously based on a true story? I mean, don't you just want to sort of gallop along and uh, just write the, the book without research? Anyway, two questions, start? one each. Uh, I didn't try deliberately to break loose, but I always felt uh, more inspired and I felt that for me personally I had more to learn from other branches of modern uh, contemporary literature than from German contemporary literature. So for me the the Americans, North and South Americans, were were much more important in my my development as a writer. Also, of course... Mm -hmm. Um, well, of course, like to all of or most writers of, of, of our generation, of course, Nabokov and Borges, I mean, that goes without saying. But And then also for Measuring the World, Garcia Marquez and Vargas Llosa. The whole idea of breaking a novel into two parallel uh, narrative structures, which for the most part of the book don't, don't meet. That's something that, for example, Vargas Llosa does obsessively uh, in, in, in most of his, uh, his novels. Um, but uh, I, I also, of course, uh, uh, being a German and being a German reader, I was also deeply um, influenced uh, by German classicism, by Goethe and Schiller and 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 and, and, the, uh, and Kleist and uh, and uh, and also by well, there's a wonderful Austrian classicist who is more or less unknown in the rest of the world, Grillparzer. He was kind of the Austrian Schiller, so to speak, but he was a wonderful writer with a wonderful grasp of the German language. So, in a way, what made writing Measuring the World such a profound experience for me was that it made it possible to bring these two completely different traditions together, to write, to have this character of a, per, of, a of a German classicist uh, who goes to South America. So I could write about this tradition of German classicism uh, with techniques from South American literature without it make without uh, and, and, and being the whole thing being completely justified by the material because it is a German classicist going to South America so for me personally I felt like finding Humboldt as a, as a character was a real a real gift because with him I could put things together that I felt were uh, very far away from each other. Um, yeah, maybe that's, that's, that's the answer. Uh, the, I can answer to your question a little bit, yes. Uh, I'm a very bad researcher, and one reason I make stuff up is because when something is too hard to look up, then I just make it up. Um, but another one of the... Ch- I mean, I also spent five years while I was working on this trilogy just rereading Austin, James, and Byron, and that was no hardship. You know, to write in the morning and to spend the afternoon to answer the question. <laughs> to write in the morning, spend the afternoon rereading Austin, Austin, James, and Byron. Um, but one of the, and you can tell, I guess, from the things we've said that I'm kind of a committed realist, at least at this point. And one of the problems with realism, it seems to me, if you're a writer, is that other people are better at their lives than I can possibly be. Not just, you know, they know how. You know, if I had to go home slightly drunk, 
in their persona, I couldn't operate the key in the lock. I wouldn't know which key it was. They know that. They know what their relationship with their mother is like much better than I can. I'm, I'm using shorthand all the time. And one of the things that's intriguing about doing a historical figure, which gets to something that we were talking about earlier, uh, in Byron's case, and um, I've shied away from doing this in the first two novels, but in the third novel, I write half of the book from Byron's point of view, is that you have so interesting a litmus test of how well you have gotten into someone else's head because it's there. Byron's journals are there. I can test my style against his. And so I took it as a kind of challenge, rereading and rereading his letters to see how closely I could approximate something that had the kind of texture that his real life had. Um, and that was interesting. And I couldn't have done that with a non-historical figure, especially a non-historical figure who didn't, uh, someone who didn't write. But it brings me to one more thing I wanted to ask you, which is you have this because of your German mother, you have this perfect grasp of, of, of German. He's, uh, ben speaks German perfectly. Perfect yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, in a way, um, and you, in a way, obviously, Byron is such an English topic, but did you ever feel like you have this kind of secret weapon of having a, this whole knowledge of, this la of a language behind you to, to, to use that for a topic that is more related to, Germ to the German language, to German culture? I couldn't write in German. No, German no, I, I, I don't hard. mean that. Yeah, no, I could, know, yeah. But you could research things in German much better than, uh, well, most or, or, or nearly all non-German novelists could do. You know, what, what the effect that the German has had on me, my first language was German, my mother is German. And even though I speak in a very flawed German, it, and I'm very bad at languages generally, the German, that I, the, the, the German <laughs> that I speak is rooted pretty deep. And so I have an attachment mm -hmm. to... The German words I know go back to my childhood, and they call up all kinds of strong childish feelings. And so it's given me, I think, an attachment to what Orwell calls the Saxon language, you know, the, the, the words with roots, the words that aren't superficially wielded. Uh, and maybe that has something to do with the kind of conversational style that I've tried mm -hmm. to work on. Um, you know, there's a big German... A lot of the sign papers are set in mm -hmm. with Germans. Yeah. Um, and the humor question. I mean, my father used to... He was not a German, like to joke that when, when God was handing out humor, the, humor, the Germans were in the bread line. Um, <laughs> the bread is really good, though. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I really do think a lot of things said about, a lot of bad things said about German Germans are actually true, and a lot of the cliches about Germans are actually true. But I think the cliché that Germany has such a, such bad humor is not entirely not true. There are quite good. There are some quite good humorists writing in the, in, in, in the German language. It is true that the average German person, though, has a little bit less humor than the average French or English person, in my experience. That is, <laughs> it's that so hard. Is it's true. so hard to measure these things in a, yeah, of in, course. In a, in a suitably German way. Um, but, <laughs> But the German, I mean, you talk about Schiller and Goethe, Heine yeah. meant a lot to me. Yes. Not only as a German, but as a German yes. Jew. And he's funny. He's, he's, he's very funny. funny. And he's a Byronist. I mean, yeah. he's, you, get, you don't get Heine yeah. without Byron, I think. And he's a wonderfully funny mm. writer uh, who's very good at the feel of the real, too. Mm. But Germans don't like Buch der Lieder anymore. Is that right? They can't read it. Um, it's, I also think it's not the best thing Heine did. But, uh, so it's also not my favorite. But it's not that popular. I mean, it's not as popular as it as it was. But mm. there, I, I would also rather go for for the late for late Heine. Yeah. But I think I think not many people want to follow us. No, they're for down the Heine. <laughs> <laughs> um, how far is either of you drawn towards writing biography rather than fiction? 
sounds like a lot of work. What do you think? I can tell you, not at all. Not, yeah. not at all. Uh, I, if I ever write, I, I would maybe one day write a non-fiction book. Uh, I, I think it would be an interesting exercise, but definitely not, uh, not biography, no. What, what's interesting to me is what does it feel like to be in someone's head? And I think in a funny way, biography doesn't have that much access to that. That seems like the domain of fiction. I wrote a novel, uh, Mian Kaminsky, about a terrible, bio a terrible person being a biographer, about a, a painter, an old painter being bothered by his terrible biographer. So I think there is, I think, of course, biographies are interesting. They have to exist in a way, but there is something very frightening and predatory about the relationship of a biographer and the person he's writing he or she's writing about, especially if that person's still alive. So um, it's interesting for me as a novelist, or it was interesting, to look at this relationship, but I wouldn't want to be in that relationship on either side, definitely not. I'm very dependent, we're very dependent yeah. on biographers, though. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one thing I do admire and envy about biography is the narrative arc. You know, you start with when they're born, and then they die, <laughs> and it's really sad. Um, and that's hard to reproduce in fiction. I think that's, that's a wonderful effect of biography. <laughs> Yes. But mostly it doesn't really work. I mean, haven't you had this experience? You start to read a biography and then you have to fight through, you have to fight yourself through these 150 boring pages of what the grandparents did and the yes. and, and early childhood. There's always so such a long stretch of information in a biography before it, it gets interesting. So, <laughs> Okay, the reason I ask is because you both seem to start out this discussion slightly beating yourselves up about why you'd chosen historical figures mm. to write about. You don't need to do that. You've chosen to go down the fictional route. You know, live with that. It's, it's okay. It's okay from our <laughs> point of view as readers I, if I, you do that. I think Thank we're beating up with a certain self, false yep. modesty. Yeah. I think yeah. <laughs> but we're also beating ourselves up, I think, because we both have made the experience that a lot of readers... Uh, are not really prepared to make the difference. So that a lot of readers really take the thing we write just as face value, even if, as, uh, no matter how often we say that it's a novel. But don't and you think writers are the worst at that? I'm, I actually just want to know what's true. And, and when, I read it, <laughs> when I read a novelist, so I want to know what they did to it. And that's I think most novelists are the same. Yeah, that, that's fine, of course. To but then we to hate it when people ask you what's <laughs> true, right? That, I think it's... I think it's a t totally valid question, yeah. but it's also totally valid not to answer it. But yeah. the, thing, <laughs> the thing that bothers me is if people just assume that it's, uh, th that it's true. And there I kind of feel a certain pity towards, for example, towards the real Gauss, because uh, he was less terrible than he is in my book. And uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't his fault. And I keep telling people it was a novel, but I know um, not everybody's interested in this distinction. So that's, that's why I get kind of self-conscious about that. But it's not something that causes sleepless nights. <laughs> Um, it's a question for um, for Daniel. Um, uh, your uh, measuring the world was um, you know, very well received um, in the reviews in, in Germany, but it also did something else, which it, it sold a lot of copies. I don't know whether, but it was something like one of the best-selling novels of the last um, decade. And I just wonder, did that come as a surprise? And do, can you explain it in any way? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> It came as, as, a, as a surprise. I had hoped that this book would sell well, but I had no, and I, I, I never, I'd never have imagined that it would sell that well. 
and uh, I can give a sh very short answer to your second question. I have no explanation whatsoever. I mean, um, uh, I, I, I'm still waiting for a good sociologist to explain that to me because it is a literary novel the, and, and uh, it has some adventures in it but not too much and uh, it's um, a novel that very much lives off the, the, the play of language and illusions and so um, I have no idea why it's sold so well I, I still think it might all be a computer mistake <laughs> but uh, to, be, to, be, to, to, to give you a serious answer I really don't understand it I'm very happy about it I'm not complaining, uh, but I don't have a good answer to that. No. Yeah, the fact that it's funny, of course, I ho of course, it might have played a played a, a role, but there are other funny books who also sell well, but they don't sell that well. So, and also, also, I keep meeting people who tell me they like the book, and it doesn't feel like they in any way related to the humor of the book. I think I think a lot of people really read it because they're interested in, I don't know, in science, in historical science, but I think that's the wrong reason to read it. So, um, but of course, uh, now I sound like I don't want people to read my book. I <laughs> want everybody to read my book, but there are some people where I don't quite understand why they read it. That's true. <laughs> but, I, but they're all welcome. Everybody's welcome to read it. <laughs> For Daniel, why did you pick two scientists? What was your interest in science? Um, well, I was interested. It's difficult to explain why uh, why you're interested in a thing and not interested in, an, in, in something else. It relates to it relates to your character. I was always interested in in science, but also in scientists. In in uh, in what kind of person does science, and what kind of person takes I mean, in, in case of, of, of Humboldt or the great explorers, that's, that's an, an, an important topic. What kind of person takes so many risks to gain nothing but knowledge? There is something very impressive in that. There's also th something, um, something funny in, 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 the, in the way uh, a certain kind of scientists, also mathematicians, uh, uh, approach the world with a kind of... Um, weird mind set on putting order to, to, to everything. I mean, there is a reason why so many scientists w uh, became mad. Um, so that was something, yeah, that I was always fascinated by. And then I found this character of, 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 of Humboldt. And as I said, I found, I found that he formed a connection between South America and, and, and German classicism. And I read more about him, and then I discovered that Gauss, who had, in so many aspects, his exact opposite, had visited him in 1828 and uh, been his guest for this uh, scientific congress. And I realized that you have this, these two completely opposite approaches to everything in, in, in the two of them. These <coughs> completely opposite personalities, opposite approaches to science, opposite approaches to anything except the fact that the most important thing in their life was wanting to understand. And so um, I, 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 saw, I, I immediately, when I read about Gauss having visited Humboldt, I saw this structure of, of, of a comic novel about these two uh, people. So it was first the people that got me interested, and uh, these people happened to be, to be scientists. Uh, but uh, 
I also felt that it's a more it was a more um, uh, I maybe I would I, I wouldn't have quite had the courage to write about a writer as as as, as you did. Um, uh, maybe maybe I would try that now, but um, but now the experiment of the historical novel for the moment I've I've done it, so um, I, I I don't think I'll do it again in the next few years. But um, it was also something helpful for me to think that they were scientists, so they did not um, they did not invent stories themselves. They were even hostile to storytelling, both of them. Uh, so Humboldt was a very good writer. He was a very good stylist, but he could not understand the concept of fiction. He was not interested in that. Why make things up when you could look at leaves and flowers? So much more interesting. So um, that was also, in a strange way, was helpful to me to think that they were not writers. So I really admire your courage to take on a writer. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.